This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Stackery and Amazon Web Services. This week, I'm chatting with Steven Pinkerton and Darcy Rayner about the state of serverless report. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 43. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Steven Pinkerton and Darcy Rayner. Hi, Steven and Darcy. Thanks for joining me. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us on. Hey. So, Steven, you are a product manager for Serverless at Datadog. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what Datadog does and a little bit about your background? Yeah. So Datadog is the company that lets you monitor all of your servers, all of your application performance, if your website's up or down all your application logs in one place and it joins all these disparate data sources together so that whenever you need to explain something or debug something, you can join all this different data and, and really figure out root cause quickly. Um, and so I've been working here about a year focusing on our serverless integration. Um, so that's helping our customers running products like AWS Lambda um, to be successful in like deploying new services built on top of serverless uh, and then debug issues uh, with their applications. Awesome. And Darcy, you are a senior software engineer for serverless uh, or for the serverless team at Datadog. Um, so why don't you tell listeners about your background and sort of what your role is at Datadog? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I've been at Datadog for about a year on the serverless team. Uh, I, like before I joined Datadog, I was working at a uh, an agency. So we were massive serverless adopters in sort of uh, everything we did. Everything was about you know getting stuff off the ground running very quickly. Uh, and low cost to our customers. Um, so, uh, but while I was there, you know, I, I, I kind of realized that there was still uh, like a bit of a gap um, in in terms of like the monitoring story. So I, I joined uh, Datadog about a year ago to like um, work on some of the integrations that we're uh, we're building here uh, with services like uh, Lambda or like Azure Functions or like GCP Functions. Awesome. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, Datadog came out with this very, very cool report called the State of Serverless. Uh, and you basically looked at a bunch of your clients, went through and, and figured out how they were using serverless, broke it all down. This is really great. Can you, and maybe Stephen, can you give me sort of a uh, some background on, on what was the uh, sort of the reason for running this uh, or for putting this report together? Yeah, so we're in a unique position where customers of all different sizes with all these different use cases are sending all their data to us. And we frequently get questions when we're on the phone with them of how do I run serverless successfully? Uh, so this is from customers who are moving workloads into serverless or they're 100% serverless and they're asking us like, which metrics do I pay attention to? Or how do I get data out of serverless? Or how do I run this in a cost-efficient way? Uh, and so we frequently get these questions and the report was a way for us to look at data across all of our customers, across all these different data sources that we have and say, here's exactly how people are running on serverless. Which technologies are they using? What are they monitoring with it? Um, and so, yeah, it was a really interesting opportunity for our customers to see how other people are using serverless really in a, a data-driven way. Yeah. Now, so it's interesting because you do mention in the beginning of, um, you know, beginning of the report that you're saying serverless in quotes, uh, but you're but you are just focusing on fast. So actually, I'd love to get your um, thoughts on this, Darcy. Like, w 
just considering what serverless is as a whole, like what what do you what do you consider that to be? Because it's more than fast. In terms of uh, the things we're looking at specifically in this report, you know, it's very uh, focused on uh, Lambda. Um, I think in general, you know, uh, we have people, you know, who uh, like come to us asking for solutions for things like, you know, ECS, Fargate, um, uh, things like Knative or like Google Cloud Run, uh, which aren't necessarily, uh, they might, you know, um, they're not necessarily following like the per invocation model um, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, like pricing and, and cost structure. Uh, and they're not necessarily, um, you know, building, you know, containerized services uh, directly around functions. Um, but they're, they're like adjacent. They have some of the pieces, you know, the uh, uh, the ability to like, you know, very quickly on demand, you know, spin up um, uh, 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 resources uh, and the ability to like, you know, have like event driven architectures like is is something I think we see across like um, different uh, solutions. Nice. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to get in, I want to get into the study itself. Um, but I do think it's important because I know someone who's tried to run a survey in the past um, that, you know, the methodology is important, right? And we want to know, um, you know, who the people are that are answering these, you know, which which way they might skew based on their population and so forth. So um, the report actually does a great job outlining this. But just because I, I'd like to go through these findings, uh, it would be great if we can sort of, you know, just talk about that methodology for a second. So um, let's start with the population. So this was just Datadog customers. Yeah, so the, the claims that we make and the data that we looked at um, is across all of these Datadog customers. We don't have data on someone who's not a Datadog customer. Uh, so for, yeah, for all of this, we looked at our customers' metrics, their trace data. Um, yeah, yeah. And, that's, and it just seems, and your customers are obviously more cloud savvy, right? So we're not looking at, um, you know, we're not looking at uh, uh, all enterprises here, just the ones that are probably much more cloud savvy using Datadog. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, great. And then um, we also talk about Lambda adoption in here. And that's one of those tough things too, where what does it mean to adopt Lambda? So can you explain sort of what that means? Uh, yeah. So Lambda adoption, we consider it to be any uh, account in AWS, which is uh, running more than five Lambda functions a month. That was sort of like the cutoff point where it's like, um, maybe they've had one or two people experiment around with it. You know, after after five, we considered it um, being regularly run. Uh, we considered that to be a uh, a company that's adopting Lambda. Right, and that ties into the AWS usage, right? In order for a company to be using AWS, they would have to uh, be running some workloads in the in that cloud. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our broader definition of like AWS usage included uh, uh, both the in, anyone who's currently using Lambda. Uh, but also, uh, uh, we looked at any organization that had uh, more than five EC2 instances running in a given month. All right. So that so this is still covering fairly small customers too. I mean, five EC2 instances is relatively low. So this gives a nice broad perspective of these small mm -hmm. customers plus large customers. Um, and then that brings us to scale of the environments, right? So how did you sort of estimate the scale of the environments? Yeah, so when we talk about um, customers being small, medium, or large, we look at the scale of the other infrastructure that they're running. Um, so we might be looking at companies that just have five Lambda functions or five EC2 hosts, um, but the way that we talk about them in the report uh, is based on how much other infrastructure do they have. So 
they might have a small Lambda footprint or they might have a small EC2 footprint, but they might have a very large footprint um, using containers, ECS, Fargate, right. et cetera. Awesome. Okay, let's jump into this. So the first finding in this report was that half of AWS users have adopted Lambda. So that means that of all the AWS customers you have, 50% or more, I think it's 53% or something like that, uh, that they are using more than five Lambda functions. Yeah, so I think this one was very surprising in that organizations are aware of Lambda uh, and more importantly, they're using it. And so from a, from a business perspective, um, we found this really surprising because these leaders and companies are bringing in Lambda because it lets their teams move a lot faster, ship new products a lot faster. And it also means from a development perspective, there's not a team you need to go to to talk about who's going to monitor your code or you don't need to request um, new servers, new, new hosts from your procure, uh, procurement group within your company. Lambda is just a really easy way to get started. And so I think that's why we see it used across so many organizations. I think like, you know, there is a lot less red tape in, you know, getting a uh, Lambda function like approved than say uh, uh, spinning up an EC2 instance. So, you know, even large traditional organizations, uh, you know, um, like banks or like, you know, financial institutions, there is like uh, uh, some adoption that's happening there just because it's it's a lot easier to, to get products off the ground running. Yeah, and then and one of the, the the points in the data is it shows that it's up about or up from about twenty one percent in two thousand eighteen. So that's more than doubled um, in two years. So is this something that I mean the the trend line looks like it's continuing to grow. Um, so is this something where we think you know the vast vast majority of customers are going to be using Lambda say by twenty twenty two? I think for. A number of workloads and use cases, absolutely. We're going to see this used everywhere. And right. I think not not just Lambda as well. It's just any type of these serverless products. So right. Right. Um, the report is very focused on, on Lambda. We do get into like what products are people using with Lambda, but people are starting to realize the value of a serverless database and serverless message queues. And the whole ecosystem is definitely here to stay, but the way that you run the, your code might be changing. Absolutely. And and Darcy, what, what types of use cases are you seeing with these Lambda functions? I think like uh, there's like a, there's a pretty big variety, you know, um, a lot of uh, the companies that are like dipping their toes in Lambda, they start very small. So, you know, it could be uh, like IT is uh, running some batch jobs every now and again, you know, on a Lambda, it's the perfect use case uh, to startups that are, um, uh, you know, maybe migrating like existing uh, Django apps, you know, into like a, a single function or like, you know, migrating a, a monolith um, to like startups that are entirely driven from serverless and like every everything's a function. So there's like a massive uh, variety in like spectrum. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, some of the some of the details we have in the report show that, you know, large enterprises with large legacy systems are adopting it, you know, in slightly different ways to to newer companies. Yeah, so let's so let's talk about that. So that's the next sort of finding here is the is that Lambda is more prevalent in large environments. So you, you kind of got at why you think that is, but is that is that just because of cloud sophistication, you think? I definitely think it's a uh, major factor. You know, when you have a large organization with several teams, um, you know, there is this, this broader movement towards like microservices and having uh, team ownership boundaries of services and, and giving engineers more autonomy. Um, and I think with that, you just have an increased likelihood of, one, two, three, four teams like adopting Lambda, and then that being sort of the uh, the the gateway in a large organization. Whereas, you know, if you're a smaller company, maybe you're um, uh, 
uh, not operating at the same uh, uh, scale yet, you know, uh, you, you can end up with uh, more uh, unified technology, which means that uh, there's less chance that Lambda will be adopted, even though more of these um, uh, startups and new companies are adopting Lambda. Yeah. And I wonder, Stephen, for you, um, do you think that education or sort of the learning curve to get people started with serverless, like this could be another thing when you get a small organization, they can't just go off and do all these skunk works projects, sort of like Darcy said, I mean, do you think education in serverless or the, the learning curve is, is, is holding some of these smaller companies back? Um, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around serverless that might hurt its adoption, um, in some organizations. Um, but it definitely requires a different way of thinking that not every organization might be ready for. But I think what we saw the trend several years ago was that it was engineers driving the adoption of serverless. People are building their own projects on top of it and then seeing how cool it is and how fast it lets them move and they're bringing it into their organizations. And um, yeah, so I think education is a big part of it, both realizing that it can solve my use case and it might actually be able to, I might be able to solve that problem faster than I could otherwise. I don't need to go spin up a bunch of Docker containers and um, manage scaling and everything for uh, for different services that I want to run. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of containers, this is one of the findings that I absolutely love. The fact that container users have flocked to Lambda. Now, clearly, they're not abandoning um, containers altogether. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with containers. We love containers. But the idea of being able to use Lambda functions um, to do some of these workloads and, and just make it so much easier, not even to worry about orchestration or any of that stuff. Um, but it sounds like, you know, or, or based on this, these findings, 80% of users that are using containers, AWS users, um, have at least five Lambda functions running. Yeah, this was another really surprising finding. And like you talked about with cloud sophistication and like what Darcy talks about with the popularization of microservices, that it's less important where you're actually running your code. And so uh, if you're already running in a microservice architecture, then it's very easy to adopt serverless and see like, oh, maybe this is a service where we want more elastic scaling or our, our workloads are a little bit less predictable and more spiky. And that's a great place to run, um, to run uh, serverless functions. So we see people running these together, um, sometimes to get the benefits of both, or just because different teams are using different technologies for the problems that they're solving. Yeah. And I wonder, Darcy, I don't know if you if you know the data on this, but are do you see a reduction in use of containers while people are migrating to Lambda functions? Or is it just sort of like a new sort of sub-segment of their architecture that's growing? I, yeah, I don't think we've seen any hard data to like indicate that. Um, I think it's probably more likely as organizations grow, you know, container adoption, um, you know, we, we did have our uh, uh, containers report come out, I think, a couple of months ago as well. Um, so there's probably better data there. Um, but that's also been growing uh, uh, a lot in orgs. As lo there are so many, there's so many opportunities for organizations to uh, migrate from, you know, maybe like a traditional sort of uh, internally hosted kind of infrastructure or um, uh, like, you know, or, or to even like older like cloud infrastructures to containers and serverless that they're both still growing. Yeah. Well, I think you get the, I think the lift and shift or sort of the lift and shift is much easier when you're porting to containers, right? And a lot of your application mm -hmm. code doesn't have to change as much. Whereas with, uh, with AWS, I'm sorry, with Lambda, you know, you are completely sort of re-engineering and, and refactoring how not just the code works, but your whole entire architecture as well. So I think that gets a little bit, um, gets a little bit complex. 
Um, yeah. So the next finding here is that Amazon SQS and DynamoDB um, pair really well with Lambda. So I think that um, is kind of obvious, like you would think, like people who build serverless applications, you want to use tools that uh, are serverless themselves, or at least play really, really well with serverless um, tools. So, um, but that was interesting because it seems like the sort of pay-per-use stuff um, is is very popular with lambdas and 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 not so much with SQL databases. Although you still see some people trying to hit MySQL with them as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is something that is. Uh due a little bit more to the legacy of Lambda. We've seen, you know, newer services like, you know, um, uh, some of the managed RDS stuff, you know, coming from Amazon, uh, which is really promising, you know, but uh, there were historical reasons or historical technical reasons why uh, using DynamoDB might've been like the the easier, less, less resistance uh, kind of solution versus um, like, you know, using RDS. I think that's changing with a lot of the uh, services that AWS has been introducing lately. Um, and you know, definitely adding the uh, the you know like managed Aurora stuff is like definitely mm -hmm. uh, a big step up from that. So I, I think we might see that change in the future. Um, there's certainly a lot of advantages to uh, uh, you know um, SQL or relational like databases that um, uh, more like you know eventually consistent um, mm -hmm. databases like uh, DynamoDB. Um, and like looking at SQS versus something like, you know, uh, Kinesis Streams, again, it's just a lot easier to set up and adopt. Um, you know, uh, engineers tend to like prefer uh, simpler integrations and the integrations that AWS has with uh, SQS are a lot quicker to get up and uh, get up and running to uh, versus something like Kinesis, which is more of like a, a workhorse solution. Right. And I didn't see uh, managed Kafka showing up as one of the cues that people yeah. are using with Lambda. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, d definitely there are a lot of orgs using, you know, managed uh, Kafka, but it's, it, there is like a, a, another level of overhead where if, if you are looking for a really simple managed solution, it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, the best way to go. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Stackery. If you're building serverless applications on AWS, you have to give Stackery a look. They've built a next generation SaaS platform that lets you securely develop, deliver, and manage serverless apps quickly, consistently, and at scale. It doesn't matter if you're building Greenfield or refactoring existing monoliths, Stackery streamlines and organizes your AWS SAM and CloudFormation templates, environment configurations, and credentials. This creates a development workflow that not only makes sure everything is properly configured and instrumented, but also increases engineering velocity by 60x. They provide a CLI, VS Code plugin, and IDE extensions that let you locally debug any Lambda in any language or framework, even against your remote cloud resources. Stackery gives you architecture visualization, one-click access to tracing and logs, local debugging, and so much more, letting your team focus on app architectures and business logic, not YAML. Chase, Farah, Danielle, Tim, and the whole team over at Stackery are awesome people, and they've built an incredibly useful product. So for more information or to sign up for a free developer account, go to stackery.io. That's S-T-A-C-K-E-R-Y.io. You mentioned about, you know, the services that AWS is offering with, um, with like, uh, you know, managed Aurora or Aurora serverless and things like that. Um, and I do, I do think that I wish there weren't as many of those solutions. I wish people were forced more to go with the more serverless type things. I mean, because serverless or Aurora serverless isn't quite 
serverless in a sense. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there is some scaling that's still required there and you still have the connection management and all those other things. And, you know, I know you've got the data API and some of those things that can really help with it. But I think overall, um, trying to push people towards things like DynamoDB for operational stuff. Now, granted, I get it. You know, you got to do your transactional stuff or you've got to do your analytics reporting and things like that. But um, but I'm kind of curious in terms of whether or not, you know, because it looks like the the number of data stores that it's sort of mixing with that SQL, um, you know, generically SQL, I guess, is fairly low um, with DynamoDB being much higher. Are you seeing you know, companies moving away from SQL and, and to DynamoDB? Or is it just one of those things where it's like whatever people are comfortable with, that's what they're going with? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is a, uh, uh, like a comfort level. You know, people tend to, uh, you know, different databases for different solutions. Dynamo is not necessarily great for things like ad hoc queries or, um, uh, you know, uh, things with complex table joins. Yeah. Um, so, there is like a level of uh, uh, technical trade-off that engineers make. I, I don't think you're ever going to see a case of um, DynamoDB like, you know, uh, entirely replacing um, uh, relational databases. I think uh, relational databases have, you know, a ton of uses. Uh, uh, and if anything, I think we'll just see the story of like using relational databases and like having managed like, you know, relational databases become uh, easier and easier and like more of the scaling overhead, uh, you know, being taken away from engineers. Right. Right. And the other thing I'm curious about too, is especially, you know, seeing that SQS and Kinesis and SNS are so, um, so popular as sort of Lambda triggering those that are then triggering the data sources. It seems like a lot of your customers are starting to embrace that idea of asynchronous thinking. Right. Is that something you 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 feel you feel you're seeing as well? Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know there is this this uh, uh, event-driven microservices revolution that's happening. You know, it does take a long time for large organizations to really uh, to buy into that idea. You know, if you've been running a monolith sort of successfully with you know. Um, uh, you know, 50 to 100 engineers for the last, like, you know, five years, then mm -hmm. it, 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 it's harder to, like, have that organizational buy-in and it takes time. Um, but I think, like, you know, that is a, uh, like, a, like a growing trend. And I think, you know, the, the different architecture patterns that people are employing around, you know, uh, 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 distributed, you know, like queuing and, like, event-driven and, and uh, you know, um, making uh, uh or like relying on very like uh, redundant and sort of ephemeral like instances for everything, whether that's in containerization or in um, in Lambda, you know, I, I I think that's growing is like you know one of the most popular web architectures. Yeah, definitely. All right, so the next one, which I thought this was kind of, I think it makes sense for Lambda functions um, to be written in Node and Python, right? Because they're very, it, it, you know, the cold start is a little bit lower and so forth, but um, it's kind of interesting because with the number of large clients that are seem to be adopting it faster, um, which I would expect to be developing, you know, apps in Java or something like that, um, you know, as, as a more popular language, uh, Python and Node.js in a landslide um, are the most popular. Yeah, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, um, uh, Things with uh, compiled languages, you know, like you know, Java is even though it's running in a VM, it is compiled. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, so things like you know Go and Java, there is more overhead in in uh, setting that up and deploying that. You know, um, you can't really use. And you know, I'm sure a lot of Lambda usage or a surprising amount of Lambda usage isn't people, um, you know, with uh, big infrastructure as code deployments. It's somebody copy and pasting like a, a Lambda function directly into the AWS CL, uh, uh, into the AWS console. Um, so I think like a lot of the adoption probably just happens from that. It's like it's a lot easier to uh, copy and paste code, adjust it, you know, in, in the console. And then for people who are using um, uh, you know, a lot of the orgs using, you know, actual infrastructure as code and, and um, deploying in a more like a, a rigorous uh, way, you know, uh, it's still a lot easier to uh, control um, and, and deploy uh, lambdas for the, those languages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think too, those, those languages are um, because they're not compiled, because you can launch them so quickly, and uh, and and I think the cold start time, you know, was another thing that was was hugely popular. But I don't know, Stephen, mm -hmm. maybe you can um, you can shed some light on this too. I mean, just thinking about which engineers might be using this, right? So uh, is it that your main, your hardcore app engineers who are coding the main infrastructure or whatever the main app are doing it in Java or or something like that? Um, whereas some of these other side use cases, maybe ETL tasks, maybe some data transformations, maybe, um, you know, I don't know, some DevOps things are just sort of quick and dirty Lambda functions that are written in, in these languages by DevOps engineers. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we, we really see the use cases all over the place here. But for actual runtimes that we see used a lot for a background job, it's very common that we'll see it in, written in Python and Node. Um, but I think what's been really surprising is that even at these really large organizations who are adopting Lambda that we talked about before, those are they're still using Node and, and Python a lot, um, which I think would surprise some folks that they're really at the cutting edge of both how they're running their code and, and the way that they're actually writing it. Um, we, we do see some more Java use on the enterprise side of people moving these Java microservices into Lambda functions. Um, and I think that fits their use case pretty well. Um, but in general, in general, we do just see the most in, in Python and Node everywhere. Yeah, I think the the other maybe interesting thing is you know you would think Ruby would fit into the uh, that paradigm of you know right. like you know dynamic language, but um, we're not seeing a lot of Ruby adoption in Lambda, um, and we're not really sure what the reasons why. You know, I think um, uh, th that'd probably be the only outlier. Uh, you know, whereas Ruby, you know. Uh, uh, was traditionally one of the m more popular um, languages that was being monitored in a, a you know like by 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 Datadog as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it could even be skewed by people have these Rails monoliths, and right. if they lift and shift that into Lambda, they just have less Lambda functions. That's also, that's also true. But that actually could be you know that leads in I think to the next um, the next finding, which um, you know could also be based on the use cases. Uh, is the fact that the median Lambda function runs for 800 milliseconds. Um, half of them run for less than 800 milliseconds, which could be, you know, front end, um, you know, maybe synchronous calls from an API gateway or something like that. Um, but those longer running ones, that sounds like there are um, other tasks that those are performing. Yeah, you know, like uh, some people have uh, probably decided to use Lambda in a way that, you know, uh, uh, is actually like running more like computationally like uh, heavy workloads, uh, things like you know um, web scrapers or, or uh, 
you know, like jobs that are uh, running continuously over a period of time. Um, we anticipate like some of that is is coming down to like, you know, I don't say misusage, but um, trying to convert like a workload, you know, like a, a square workload into like a, you know, a circular hole. Um, you, you can say misusage because I, I think yeah. that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it might be the case that some workloads aren't necessarily entirely, you know, um, appropriate for like services like Lambda and, you know, containerization, um, you know, something like ECS or like Fargate uh, would be more appropriate. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, there are some cases where people are just making it work, I think. Um, for, for, for the lower to use cases, yeah, I think the majority of um, events that are, uh, we, we see are probably like HTTP events. So like low latency is, is um, uh, really, really important for like an API, um, which, which is probably why we see, uh, see such a heavy skew towards like fast implications. Yeah. Well, the other part of that too was that basically um, it says one fifth of Lambda functions run for a hundred milliseconds or less, which is interesting because, of course, that is the um, that is the billing um, you know the billing threshold or the unit of billing for for AWS. So um, I know there have been some calls, including from myself, to you know get that granularity down, maybe fifty milliseconds as opposed to hundred milliseconds. But um, but that's interesting because again, you can't run much in a hundred milliseconds um, unless it's something like responding to an API gateway, for example. Yeah, you know, I think like with a lot of these asynchronous patterns that exist in Lambda, you know, you can uh, you can push something to be written off to a database in like a a more like an eventually consistent way in that amount of time. Um, That's true. Yeah. You know, so uh, there are like patterns that exist that that really reduce the amount of latency um, that can go into like a, a web request and get you like a very uh, very fast like average response time. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of lambdas are doing just like you know processing work. They're they're transforming you know like output from a queue or like. Uh, um, you know, and then that's going off to, you know, the next queue. So um, there, there is a mix of use cases, I think. Yeah, definitely. All right. So the next one is half of Lambda functions have the minimum memory allocation. And speaking of misuse, this is probably one of those. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the memory allocation, uh, it, it probably comes more down to miseducation. Uh, uh, although, you know, if your if your lambda is executing with 100 milliseconds, like maybe it makes sense to leave it, you know, um, right. uh, there. I think people don't spend a lot of time thinking about like how to optimize these services. You know, um, it's it's uh, uh, we've removed so much of the um, uh, the thinking about like overhead and and infrastructure um, that developers are just putting things in lambda and and not even uh, spending the time to like. Uh, tweak it and reduce latency, um, and potentially cut costs. Yeah, and and Stephen, do you think that that is just something where we need to develop better best practices around? Absolutely. Yeah, we. This is a question that we hear a lot from folks about how do I optimize my Lambda workloads, and I think just because Lambda and serverless has let us write code, upload it to a cloud provider, and let someone else run it, there's still knobs that you can turn to adjust performance, and I think there's a lot of miseducation or complete lack of education around like, what do these knobs mean? Um, and so we see this as well when customers run into issues with concurrency limits, 
Um, memory is another big one. Uh, and one of the latest ones has been provision concurrency. That's both like, how do these work and how do I use it effectively for my application right. and to make my, uh, to be most efficient with cost. Yeah. So another, another um, sort of best practice maybe um, is setting good timeouts, right? Because you certainly don't want, I mean, with Lambda functions, you're paying while they're processing. So if you have something that hangs for some reason, if you expect it to end or the processing should end within 10 seconds and you set it for 10 minutes and it just keeps on running and running and running, then obviously you're paying for something you don't need to. So, um, so the report points out that two thirds of defined timeouts are under a minute. Which is which is probably good. There's probably more granularity in there. Um, but I think the scary thing was a bunch of them were set for 15 minutes, the maximum. I can see like why some developers would choose to do that. You know, um, the the reasoning is like maybe this is a uh, intense job and we can't afford for it to fail. Uh, but the truth is that like you know, um, any any piece of infrastructure you build, you should have the ability to you know, like recover and retry, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, for the sake of scalability. So I, I think it's maybe being used as a, 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 like a crutch by, you know, some developers or engineers to um, uh, try and guarantee something's going to finish uh, without spending the, the time to think about how to like uh, engineer, engineer their workloads to run quickly. Yeah, I, I, I... I tend to lean more towards the crutch side of things because I think <laughs> I think that it's just like oh I can let it run for fifteen minutes I'll let it run for fifteen minutes but have you or has your team um, and Stephen maybe because you're closer to the customers you you could see this but um, have people sort of had concerns over this idea of the denial of wallet like this idea of sort of flooding um, you know flooding Lambda or you know API gateway so that your Lambda functions are just running is that something that that uh, you you hear about a lot. We hear some security concerns occasionally similar to this. Um, and I think there's split between timeouts and concurrency limits where mm -hmm. they're both things that can starve resources in your account. So um, if you have a high timeout and you get flooded with requests, you're going to have a Lambda functions executing for a long time. Uh, it's just going to cost you money unnecessarily. And then on, a con on the concurrency limit side, we see this as an issue where if you have unbounded concurrency and your function gets too many invocations, then it can actually starve the concurrency in that region of your AWS account and actually cause your other functions to not run. Uh, and so I think that's a common gotcha that we see you and that, that we see. Uh, and so we typically recommend that customers set timeout limits and uh, when appropriate concurrency limits just to prevent these kinds of uh, attacks. Yeah, and actually the concurrency limit was the, um, uh, was the last, uh, or I think, yeah, was the last point here um, that was, or the last finding that only 4% of functions have a defined concurrency limit. And I think for a lot of internal communications, like maybe if you're using for DevOps or different use cases like that, then you know having a concurrency on it probably isn't that big of a deal. But certainly some of these ones that are you know, forward-facing or are processing off of queues or anything where you could just flood these things, that seems... That seems a little bit scary to me, although it does say that 88.6% of organizations have at least one function with the concurrency limit defined. I'm not 100% sure uh, why people aren't setting them. I think like uh, there is this prominent pro uh, like promise of serverless uh, of it just scales. You know, like you right. you um, you have like a sudden demand or like peak in usage, it just scales. Uh, 
this might be coming down to you know engineering teams not asking themselves questions of um, or like you know not really planning the maximum capacity uh, to their systems. You know, uh, lambdas that are just running you know cron jobs in the background. You know, they don't necessarily um, need that kind of uh, thought put into them. And I think like you know uh, organizations that do use concurrency limits generally are thinking about scaling um, and. Uh, 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 yeah, the thing about scaling in a much more like granular way, um, and again, that account-wide concurrency, you know, limit across every function, is uh, something that's very easy to get bitten by, you know, early on when you're uh, dipping your toes in um, in Lambda and getting uh, getting a bit of usage. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. AWS is my favorite cloud provider for deploying serverless applications, and one of the main reasons for that is because of Amazon EventBridge, which is their serverless event bus that makes it super easy to build distributed systems using data from your own applications, integrated SaaS applications, and AWS services. If you haven't explored EventBridge yet, or you want to dig deeper into the advanced features, you have to check out AWS's new EventBridge Learning Path video series. The videos are masterfully hosted by my good friend James Bezik, who might somehow actually be a bigger EventBridge fan than me. In seven demo videos, James will cover everything you need to know about getting started with EventBridge, how to use advanced features like the schema registry, and even videos that'll show you how to integrate with SaaS providers like Zendesk, PagerDuty, and Auth0. These videos are packed with information and you'll learn a ton about event-driven architectures in just 60 minutes. To find this amazing resource, either check the show notes for this episode or simply search the web for Amazon EventBridge Learning Path. Yeah, and, and then maybe this is an education thing too, because I've been saying this for quite some time where your average developer usually doesn't know anything about the infrastructure, right? I mean, they're writing code and you have an ops team or you have some, you know, eventually got to the DevOps culture where kind of working together to make sure that the code you wrote had the right infrastructure behind it. Um, but when it comes to things like Lambda functions, I mean, there's just a lot of questions that, you probably never had to ask yourself as a developer before. Um, and as you said, as teams become more agile and they're able to just publish directly to a Lambda function as opposed to have somebody set up a Kubernetes cluster for them with all kinds of defined rules, um, they're, I guess your average developer is probably not thinking about this. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, we've, uh, we've built a really, really powerful abstraction, um, but it is an abstraction and there are, you know, uh, leaks. You know? Um, right. Concurrency is absolutely one of those things. You know, have the have the process of uh, uh, you know lambda like works leaks a bit. You know how how um, uh, uh, the language and the runtime works within that context leaks a bit. You know, and if uh, if you if you just take the mentality of um, uh, it will just run my code as much as I need it to, uh, then you're uh, you're probably not thinking about it quite 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 enough. Yeah, I mean, because the other thing, too, as you mentioned, where this promise of serverless is we'll just scale. We'll just keep scaling and scaling and scaling. Um, and nothing is infinitely scalable, right? Everything has limits at some point. And obviously, the the per the per region concurrency limit is an artificial limit that AWS puts. And you can you can increase that. So if you have, you know. 10,000 concurrent requests, you can you can have them increase that for mm -hmm. you. Um, but I think your average person probably doesn't think about that. Like at some point is too much scale 
not good, right? Like, do we want to limit scale because of downstream systems, because of billing concerns, because of all of these other things? Yeah, you know, every, every uh, when we talk about like event-driven architectures, they're, they're you know, really, um, it's the same as any infrastructure. There's like, you know, bottlenecks in these, in these, uh, um, in the, in the, in the pipes and the connections between, you know, our, our different services. Uh, it's very easy to uh, create downstream pressure. I think like, you know, the, the, the more um, people buy into uh, uh, the serverless promise, which is like every piece of your infrastructure is, is uh, meant to be something that can scale automatically for you, like Dynamo, like SQS. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the more easy it is to like the to miss the finer print on on um, thing you know uh, like miss the finer print on how your system could fail. Um, and so why monitoring is still like you know extremely important in these right. environments. You can't you, you can't really skip that because you could uh, you know find yourself in a situation where you, your services start failing, even though you know you've got all the all the settings to say you know. Um, scale to a million, scale to like, you know, a billion or whatever. Um, and, and one small thing might, might not be able to like keep a promise and, uh, uh, and suddenly you have a failure somewhere in your system. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, distributed systems in and of themselves are very difficult. And now when you start talking about all of these little components, all these little building blocks with serverless, and you've got Lambda functions and queues and databases and, uh, and streams and all that stuff that's communicating with one another, uh, being able to understand where those failures are is a is a hugely important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. So, all right. So, those were the findings in this report. And and uh, if you haven't seen this report yet, uh, datadoghq.com/state-of-serverless. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes as well. But while I've got you two here, um, you work with a lot of enterprises. Um, you know, it's great to get some insight into what, you know, other people are doing. You're an enterprise yourself or you work for an enterprise um, yourself. So I'd love to start um, and maybe just get a little bit of context from you. Like how did Datadog get started with serverless? I mean, and actually you're like, you know, how serverless are you actually? That was probably a good question. <laughs> that, yeah, that is a good question. Um, so like, you know, we're, we're about a 10 year old company, I think. See the 2009 or 2010 um, that we we started. So we were like pretty early as part of like the this whole like DevOps revolution. I think that was part of the uh, like the uh, our our mission statement was like you know to be a part of that movement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but like our infrastructure was you know it was built on EC2 instances. It was you know glued together with all the things you you would do you know in, in like a 2010 sort of cloud architecture. Um, uh, and you know we've scaled, so like we bought in like a bunch of different teams and products and 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 different services acquisitions from you know uh, 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 different companies that have been like you know brought into the fold. So uh, like happens, you know we we've had um, uh, uh, internally you know like a lot of adoption to to move um, to like a more like microservice you know um, based approach. Uh, and having um, teams own, you know, like individual services which they, you know, maintain and and uh, deploy and and, and monitor. Um, so that's been like you know a big trend internally. We have a lot of like Kubernetes adoption, um, and we have uh, serverless adoption as well uh, for a lot of our teams. Like you know, on the serverless team, you know, surprisingly, but like our compute loads don't 
don't uh, run on serverless because we we use you know um, the same infrastructure as a lot of you know um, uh, Datadog has historically. Sure. Uh, uh, but you know when we went out and, and you know started t- talking to like you know people in the company and like finding you know places that uh, uh, serverless was being adopted, we found it was actually like adopted uh, like pretty pretty widely you know in the, in the company and like you know very uh, different and sort of diverse use cases. We have like a lot of internal tools and products like it built um, uh, uh, like on top of you know uh, Lambda, um, a lot of tooling around you know CI/CD you know is is uh, Using Lambda, Slackbots, uh, uh, so like there's a lot of uh, you know in some like production workloads, you know Lambda is a piece of that as well. Um, so it, it was it was really surprising just to to find the the different sort of use cases that existed within our company. You know, like w- we have a commitment, um, funnily enough, to to be sort of a vendor agnostic um, uh, uh, infrastructure. Sure. So like a lot of what we do and build is is running on Kubernetes, but uh, a lot of the glue pieces that we have uh, to run our business are, are running on services like Lambda. Awesome. And Stephen, is that something too? Again, talking to your customers, um, and, and obviously you're, you've you've seen the serverless adoption with the report here. Um, but it seems like no matter what you're using out there, serverless is probably a part of it somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So that's something that we we took away from the report as well as just the customers that we talk to every day. That serverless is all around us and that things that we use applications websites that we interact with every day are using serverless somehow Uh, and it's not even just an internal tools it's um, your banking application the way you buy movie tickets um, the way you sell something on the internet like in some way all these different companies are using serverless or using um, lambda workloads or they're using um, some sort of serverless technology uh, either with serverless containers databases uh, on other cloud providers it's it's really everywhere and i think the adoption is so much higher than any of us expected yeah that's awesome um all right so another thing that is always seems to be or always seems to be a popular topic of conversation um, especially with companies like yours that have to work you know with with customers that are probably um faced with this internal battle um is this idea of multi-cloud right and again there's a million different definitions of it um, multi-cloud versus being cloud agnostic, for example, are probably two different things. Um, but just, I'd love to get your take, uh, Darcy, on 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 this multi-cloud thing and what you you know what you're seeing from your customers, um, you know, and what you need to support, I guess, from a serverless standpoint. Yeah, you know, we we definitely see uh, we see a lot of very large enterprises that are uh, multi-cloud, and sometimes it just comes down to you know, like which team within that company, you know, um, uh, 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 like is building something, you know, um, you have like large multinational corporations that uh, uh, tend to go, you know, or be more likely to go uh, multi-cloud, you know, because um, uh, uh, they might have been, you know, like, uh, you know, acquiring a company here or like bringing um, like a different provider in here. I think, uh, uh, I haven't seen personally many examples of um, companies choosing multi-cloud as their uh, their like primary like architecture. Um, I think you do have uh, like you do have people mix and matching, you know, um, uh, software as a service kind of solutions. You know, maybe like outside of their like primary cloud platform. You know, it might be you know pulling an auth zero or like. Um, uh, like another like managed service on top of that, 
uh, but I haven't seen um, too many examples of companies uh, primarily, um, you know, splitting splitting their infrastructure uh, 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 service by service on 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 different clouds. I, I do think you do see like bridging technologies. So mm -hmm. um, there are some uh, uh, some of these providers that do do. Um, uh, uh, multi-cloud, but in a like an abstracted way. So you know you, you have code that you want invoked, and maybe they'll find a way to like bundle that for Lambda or Azure functions and GCP functions, and and distribute it across different cloud providers that way. Um, and you know we do see maybe like mixed adoption between something like you know Cloudflare workers for um, uh, uh, you know web traffic specific flows versus um, you know running the majority of your uh, infrastructure in AWS. Right. I think that's pretty common. Um, and then you know, there's really exciting things with like you know, um, Knative and and uh, Google Cloud Run, you know, for instance, where we're trying to think about how to build um, uh, serverless applications in a platform agnostic way, um, which I think is like uh, going to be very uh, like very cool in the future. Now, again, platform agnostic would be would maybe be a great dream if all of these platforms weren't doing things differently, right? I mean, because mm. to be serverless on AWS probably means something, or being serverless on AWS means something completely different than being serverless on Azure, for example. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, yeah. functions and service, things like that, but just, just the different services available, it seems like there's so much different that that at least for quite some time until there's some standardization that it, it, it just doesn't make sense that agnostic or cloud agnostic is going to be a thing. Yeah, you know, like I, 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 I think like you know, with something like Cloud Run, you know, it is wouldn't tick all the boxes for how you define um, uh, serverless with, or well, like Knative probably wouldn't tick all the boxes for how you define serverless, like in a uh, compared to Lambda. So you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if you're running like a Knative workload, that's not um, uh, that's not ticking in the box of you know paying like via an invocation model. You know, you are you're managing a cluster still. Um, you are, you know, like building functions, um, and you are doing like event-driven workloads. So, you know, uh, versus something like Google Cloud Run, where you know you do have more of the invocation model. Um, so, I, I, I think like there is a, a definite mix and match. Companies tend to buy really heavily into um, uh, one platform set of uh, uh, set of conventions and services, and sure. I think, you know. Um, Unless you have like a high priority on on having uh, like multi cloud availability, that's generally uh, the way companies that I've seen would choose to go. Yeah, and Stephen, I'm curious too. Again, being close to the customers, in terms of how uh, people are approaching to build serverless applications, is it's more than just choosing technologies. Obviously, right? It's sort of this uh, you know avoiding choosing the lowest common denominator, trying to choose services that are kind of that are scalable, that are that are easy to plug in. But just are you seeing this sort of serverless mindset or the serverless first kind of shift? Absolutely. Um, and obviously, that's biased by the customers who I talk to. But of course, <laughs> we see the, these customers who come in and are adopting serverless for all new products that they build, or they're moving existing infrastructure over to it. Or they've even decided when they started as a company that they were going to be 100% serverless. And so we're seeing this mindset really increase more and, and we're seeing it um, mean more than just functions as a service. It's really what are, how are we storing data 
Um, so for example, we see a lot of these customers using technologies like AppSync. App mm -hmm. So they're really at the cutting edge of using GraphQL, um, data stores, these event-driven architectures. Um, yeah, we typically see all of this uh, together. Hmm. Awesome. All right, I want to ask you one more question because um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this uh, and what you're seeing from adoption from your customers. I know it wasn't in the report, but something, you know, people always ask like, oh, well, what's, what's next? What's after serverless? What comes next? Um, and I tend to believe, and I think other people agree with this, that it's edge computing, right? That that's sort of the next place where you're going to see a shift, right? So this idea of not having to manage infrastructure is great. Um, it's going to be even better when it is, you know, when, you're, when your execution environment is no further than two miles away from the customer that's trying to access it because it's just at every pop throughout the world. So um, what are your thoughts? I mean, are you, see, you did mention Cloudflare workers, Darcy. Um, mm. But what about like Lambda Edge and things like that? Are you seeing that adoption? Yeah, I think like uh, Lambda Edge is becoming, you know, um, pretty popular. Uh, it's primarily just used for use cases around, um, you know, most of the time serving web traffic and, you know, like it, uh, things like adjusting HTTP headers uh, or um, uh, sometimes, you know, if you're serving a static site, you might like stick a uh, like CloudFront plus Lambda Edge, you know, uh, in front of that to, uh, and, and Lambda Edge is a great way to do things like A-B testing or mm -hmm. like um, create, create uh, 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 customize like a static site in a way uh, for your users. I think like, you know, there will be um, a move past this concept of uh, uh, regions because like something like Lambda Edge doesn't really fit into the idea of regions in AWS very neatly. Um, so I think, you know, uh, uh, the, the idea of like, you know, infrastructure and, and actual, you know, like heavy workloads uh, uh, that are, you know, maybe still talking to your databases and still um, uh, like, you know, distributed geographically is going to be uh, more common. Um, you know, at, at the moment, it's still kind of like tricky to do like a, like a multi-region kind of right. um, uh, like infrastructure. You're still going to be limited um, uh, uh, or like you're still going to be uh, making geographical trade-offs, you know, like how you, how you reach your customers and how you store like, you know, data in a way that uh, there's enough proximity to reduce that latency. Um, uh, so I think there is an evolution to be had there, um, but we're, we're only at like the tip of that, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the data piece of it is, is probably uh, going to be the hardest. I mean, with, with Cloudflare workers, they've got the, the global KV store, which mm. is great. But still, like, what data do you need to replicate to certain regions? And, um, you know, just I think making the serverless jump is hard enough for a lot of developers. Never mind. It's like not only are you running concurrent functions, you're now running concurrent functions at 180 you know, points of presence across the world or something yeah. like that. Um, and you have to manage the data separately and your app has to be smart enough to do it or the system has to be smart enough to do it. So I, I think that's uh, I think that's yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, developers are struggling to, like, you know, join data, you know, across multiple tables, you know, like, how do, how do they do that across multiple regions? <laughs> that's like... right, that's right. Yeah, I can see that getting uh, getting very, very complex. So, um, so listen, uh, you know, thank you both for, for being here and going through this report. I mean, that was awesome. Um, a lot of great information, I think. And uh, like I said, if people want to go and check out um, the report itself or check out Datadog, um, they can do that at datadoghq.com. Um, so um, why don't we just, if people do want to contact either of you, I know, Stephen, you're on Twitter. 
Yeah, I'm SPNKTN on Twitter. Okay, and then the Datadog blog is just datadoghq.com slash blog. Um, and uh, I think Darcy, you're kind of in the shadows on Twitter, right? You don't do you don't do much of that. <laughs> no, I, I'm not uh, like a massive Twitter user. Unfortunately. All right, you're too you're too busy building stuff <laughs> to support serverless. So so that's great. So again, thank you both. I will get uh, I'll get all this information to the show notes, and um, it was great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having us. That's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Steven Pinkerton and Darcy Rayner for being my guests this week and to our sponsors, Stackery and Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 43. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.